Welcome to you all this evening, and a special welcome uh, to Professor Ed Hutchins, who will tonight deliver the last of this academic year uh, Psychology and Social Science Public Lecture Series. Um, before I introduce Professor Hutchins, let me say just a few words about the series. Psychology as a Social Science is a program of public lectures that explores the relations between psychology and the social sciences. Hosted by the Institute of Social Psychology and generously supported by the LSC Deputy Directors Fund, the lectures aim to draw attention to the potential and the necessity of integrating psychology in the wider intellectual program of the social sciences. Now in its fourth year, the series brings together psychologists, philosophers, and social scientists to reflect on how the disciplinary traditions of psychology have engaged with the social sciences and address topics that are central to both. They also seek to emphasize the past, the present, and the future of psychology here at the school, where from the mid-20th century onwards, the project and the vision of a societal psychology took shape. Now, let me say a few words about our speaker tonight, although he probably doesn't need introduction. Ed Hutchins is Professor of Cognitive Science at the University of California, San Diego, and since 2002, a Fellow of the Cognitive Science Society. Professor Hutchins is one of the world's most distinguished cognitive scientists. His book, Cognition in the Wild, contributed tremendously to our understanding of cognition, of human cognition, and establish new grounds to think about cognition as a social and cultural phenomenon. His work on representations as action has been innovative and unconventional, combining anthropological and psychological methodologies to uncover the workings of human cognition in settings such as uh, boats and cockpits. In addition, uh, Professor Hutchins is also a racer. I'm told he sails very well. Uh, he knows how to navigate by the starts of Micronesia. And a qualified pilot has been advising the aviation industry wide. So we're delighted that he is contributing to the series and delivering to the, tonight's lecture on the cultural practices of cognition. Please join me in giving him a very warm LSU welcome. Thank you, Sandra, for that very nice uh, introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here this evening, and I have to say part of the honor for me of being here at LSE is it allows me to take one more small step in the footsteps of the great cultural anthropologist, Bronislaw Malinowski. As many of you know, Malinowski was a student here um, with uh, studying with Seligman before he went to the Trobriand Islands in 1914. Uh, he got stuck there for the duration of the First World War. Uh, when he came back from the Trobriands, uh, he became a professor here at LSE. Um, maybe some of you know that 60 years later, uh, I went to the Trobriand Islands of Papua New Guinea. And I can tell you I was not able to replicate Malinowski's uh, 
path-breaking uh, ethnographies, but I was able to replicate his body posture. <laughs> so Malinowski in the Trobriands and then at LSE, Hutchins in the Trobriands, and now briefly at LSE. Um, one of the things you can see in this photograph, it's not very distinct, but um, I'm carrying what was in 1976 a state-of-the-art stereo uh, portable tape recorder. Uh, I weighed 11 pounds. And uh, uh, the interesting thing for me, something I learned here, was that Malinowski's technology for recording behavior was basically a paper and a pencil. Uh, he did have a camera, and he took many images, many of which are available, by the way, online through your excellent library here. Um, but Malinowski tried, as a student of language, to record language. And the only language that you can record word for word and know you're getting it right every time is the kinds of language that people can repeat over and over, word for word. So Malinowski's linguistic materials are rich in representations of magic. Because magical spells, by their nature, have to be repeatable exactly over and over again. Now, as a consequence of that, we have a body of linguistic materials for the Trobriand Islands. The best attested examples there are examples of magic. And in the 1960s, a philosopher named Dorothy Lee analyzed those texts as examples of reasoning by Trobriand Islanders and concluded that Trobriand Islanders do not conceive of causality. <laughs> now, if it had been the case that magic was actually representative of Trobriand discourse, that would not have been an outlandish claim. Um, but I was able, 60 years later, to record what people actually said and then to transcribe what people actually said and then to analyze the logical relations that people created while they were doing this activity, which is land litigation. And of course, it turns out that Trobriand Islanders understand logical relations that fall into the same patterns of inference that you or I would use. But this was a formative experience for me because it made me acutely aware that what comes to mind when a social scientist thinks about cognition or communication or social interaction, depends on the scientist's field of study and on the nature of the available data. As technology changes, the available, the available data changes, and that changes what we think could be possible in the world of cognition. That changes what we look for, which then changes what we desire in our technology and so on. Um, most social scientists implicitly learn ways to imagine social phenomena as part of being socialized into a field. Um, cognitive scientists with backgrounds in artificial intelligence imagined interaction as an exchange of strings of symbols. Um, conversation analysis uh, imagined verbal exchanges, a telephone conversation, for example. Ethnographers of speaking imagined face-to-face -face interaction. And these images draw our attention to certain kinds of phenomena and draw our attention away from other kinds of phenomena. And getting these images right, what comes to mind when you think of social interaction or you think of communication or you think of cognition, that is very consequential 
for the kind of science that you will do. But mostly these things are learned implicitly and we don't examine them very much. So I want to examine some of that today for our history of cognitive science. Uh, I want to start that by pointing out four facts that I think everyone in this room knows. Um, humans inhabit bodies of flesh. Just look down. There it is. Uh, the brain is an organ in that body. Now this, I, don't, I can't demonstrate to you at the moment. You take my word for it. Uh, humans are highly social animals. Uh, you can just look around yourselves right now and see that. And humans inhabit culturally organized worlds. And I'll have much more to say about that in just a moment. But these are four facts that I think help us understand what we all know about cognition, but it's interesting the way these things got left out of cognitive science. Early cognitive science actually imagined cognition without culture, context, history, or affect. I'm quoting here from um, Howard Gardner in his very good 1985 book, The Mind's New Science. He pointed out that early cognitive science intentionally left these things aside not because anyone thought they weren't important, but because they're just too complex to deal with. And we would never get the enterprise off the ground if we tried to look at things that were too complex. It's interesting, now that we look back, um, cognitive science, early cognitive science, also ignored the body. All of our early models of cognition are disembodied. By 1991, Danny Bobrow, who was then president of the American Association of Artificial Intelligence complained at their annual meeting that they had been building models of deaf, dumb, blind, paraplegic agents <laughs> for 40 years. So we had to get somehow get the body back into AI. That was hard. Incredibly, early cognitive science leaves the brain aside through a move that was called machine functionalism the early cognitive scientists felt that what matters is the organization of the program that a cognitive system is running, and it doesn't matter if that program runs on a laptop computer or on a mainframe computer or on what's between your ears. The machine it runs on is not relevant. What's relevant is the structure of the program. And with that move, we could ignore neuroscience in early cognitive science. And of course, society was largely left out of early cognitive science. Society was something that people could think about, but it was not felt to be something that affected the thinking that people were doing. So many trends have occurred over the last 40 years um, to change this, and I like to think that I've had some influence on this change. Uh, that influence comes partly, as Sandra pointed out, that I was trained as an anthropologist, and I began my career imagining cognition in the wilds of Papua New Guinea. Uh, here, land litigation, and on the right you see a Trobriand garden. I won't say more about land litigation today. Uh, I spent some time figuring out how Micronesian navigators sail hundreds of miles of open ocean without any instruments or charts and reliably make landfall on tiny specks of coral. This is a part of the world where less than two-tenths of one percent of the surface of the planet is land. 
So that's an interesting puzzle. And having been trained as a navigator in our own tradition, it interested me uh, how it could be done without tools. Um, I really discovered the phrase cognition in the wild as a result of studying navigation in our own Western tradition on large ships. As you see here on the upper left is a photo of a navigation team on the bridge of a ship, as you see in the center. And there's one of my favorite books over there on the right. Um, for the last 20 years, my village has been the global community of commercial airline pilots. I've been studying uh, basically cockpit operations, uh, training, and instrument design for cockpits for the last uh, 20 years. And I will give you some examples from my research on ship navigation in the aviation world. Let me briefly digress to give you, a, I think, a slightly more modern sense of cognitive science. I give my students this story. Uh, think of cognitive science as a slice of scientific cake. Uh, you can imagine the traditional boundaries among scientific disciplines are basically grounded on the scale of phenomena. So if you think of something like uh, atomic physics is the foundation or the ground floor of the sciences, and maybe now subatomic physics is in the basement. Um, but if we knew how atoms behaved, uh, we still wouldn't know how molecules behave entirely, but physics informs chemistry, and chemistry is the science of molecules. Um, certain kinds of molecules are organic molecules, and so now we could have biology, looking at a slightly larger uh, scale of phenomena. Um, some kinds of biologic systems are neural systems, so we could build neuroscience on top of biology. Uh, maybe we can build psychology on top of neuroscience. Um, maybe we can build linguistics. If we knew about psychology, we could have anthropology. As many of you know, there are now disciplines in almost all the gaps between those earlier disciplines, so there's a strong sense of interdisciplinarity. Um, and, of course, mathematics being the queen of the sciences unites all of those as a language of description. And uh, there's where I think cognitive science is. A, a few years ago, I had to pull it down into physics. Um, and that's, we can debate that over a beer later. But, um, so there's a, a sense of what cognitive science would be about. It's not taking a particular level of cognitive phenomena, but it's taking a little piece of a bunch of levels and especially looking for the relationships among them. Now, all of these levels create systems, and at each level we have a system that's made out of components that might be drawn from the level below. And the whole point of having systems, as far as I'm concerned, is that systems have different properties from the properties of their parts. I mean, look at any interlayer relationship there. Biology is not just chemistry. There's something special about life. Chemistry is not just physics. There's something about molecules that you don't get in physics. So systems have different properties from their parts, and that's true of cognitive systems as well. And that's one of the great things about cognition is that when we build, you have little pieces, and you put those pieces together into a larger system, you get properties that the component parts didn't have. And for me, 
as an anthropologist, I've been focused on systems that are bigger than an individual, although I'm going to show you in a moment that systems that are smaller than an individual operate with these same properties. But I've focused on three ways that cognition is distributed in systemic form. It's across the social world, in interactions between people and their material world, and also through time, how cognitive systems change through time. And a sort of mantra that I repeat uh, as I work is to ask this question, what information goes where, when, and in what form? Because if you know the answer to that question, you can predict or explain cognitive properties of systems at a variety of levels. Um, within a brain, some people think distributed cognition means cognition in the social world or with cultural artifacts. But no, really, it's also a brain is a distributed cognitive system. And this is a, a macaque brain with color-coded visual areas. And on the right-hand side is a, an imagined wiring diagram showing the interconnectivity of the various areas of the macaque visual cortex. And the key thing is that understanding vision, how the macaque visual system works in a macaque brain, is largely understanding the dynamic flow of information through that system. So we can do it at that level. Um, we can also talk about interactions in the social world where social organizations can have cognitive properties that are different from any of the individuals in them. There's beautiful work on jury decision-making, for example, where if you manipulate when people can discuss evidence with each other in a jury, you can change the space of outcomes that are possible for a jury without changing anything inside any juror. Much of social psychology is a way to investigate how you get different properties at higher levels. Uh, it's now made its way into the popular um, uh, book market. Uh, there's a book called The Wisdom of Crowds. Uh, there's another one called Networks. And my favorite is Cass Sunstein's recent book called Infotopia. All of these are books that are looking at how it is that you could organize a, a group of minds to get out of it the best system-level cognitive properties. And, of course, markets. You know what a market is? Is market is a cognitive mechanism. What a market does is computes prices. That's basically what a market is for. And two weeks ago, we had this enormous market pathology where the Dow Industrial Average lost something like 7% of its value in less than 15 minutes. Now, this was not an intended consequence, as far as we know, of anyone's action. It was not an anticipated consequence. It was an unanticipated consequence of what information went where, when, in what form. And it had to do actually with an interaction between safety mechanisms that had been put in place 20 years and then an ecology of trading in, what is this called? Uh, micro, micro, pico trading? Nano trading. Nano trading where different traders are actually in an arms race with each other to get the fastest computer response uh, to changes in the market. And I, I think these kinds of, this is uh, what the sociologist uh, Charles Perrault would have called a, uh, 
a system incident or maybe even a system accident, a normal accident, because it involved an unanticipated interaction of system elements, but even more than that, it was an unanticipated interaction with safety features. Well, the safety features themselves were implicated. So we can go to the social world. I want to talk more about interaction with the material world for a few minutes. Um, much of the material world, the natural world, is not built by us. So here's a star chart of the night sky. Um, and consider seeing. Now, seeing is a cognitive function. That's something that is done by the eye and the brain. And the eye and the brain may see points of light here. Um, I'm doing some fancy hand-waving to convince you that you're actually seeing stars as well. Um, what do you see when you see a star? And what about a planet? There's actually a planet in there. What does it mean to see a planet? It's indistinguishable, as far as your eye is concerned, from a star. So how do you know it's a planet? Well, the only way you know it's a planet is because of cultural practices. There are ways of seeing that allow some of you, but not all of you, to see planets. Does anyone see a constellation? Some of you see constellations. How many see constellations? Okay, this is good. You're better than my typical undergraduates uh, <laughs> at home. Um, is that the constellation most of you saw? Mm -hmm. That's the most prominent one. Uh, Ursa Major, the Big Bear. That's really cool um, evidence recently that the idea that those stars are a bear is at least 15,000 years old. And the way we know is that it's a bear for the um, Aleuts who live in Siberia, and it's also a bear for North American Indians. And they figure it had to have come across the Bering Land Bridge um, as a piece of cultural knowledge and a cultural practice of seeing that group of stars. Now, seeing that group of stars as a constellation is not something that your eye or your brain does by itself. Seeing that as a bear is something that's a cultural practice. It's one we know has been around for 15,000 years, and it's part of a rich ecology. There are more constellations there. Some of you may know, I'll yell for a second, these are sometimes called the pointer stars, because if you follow them, you find Polaris, the North Star. And then there's other things you learn. You follow the arc to Arcturus. So <laughs> as a navigator, as a sky watcher, you learn lots and lots of bits of cultural practice that are ways of domesticating visual attention in interaction with the sky to produce the appearance of things that are there, but they're not there. They're not there in a sense that a physicist would say there's a constellation there and not here. In fact, I would argue that much, maybe even most, of what you and I see in the world are things that are seen through cultural practices. They're not things that are literally there. So I'll try to give you a few more examples of that. Um, here's one of my favorite ones. Um, people arrange their bodies in space in a particular way, and suddenly an arrangement of people becomes a cue. And a cue now has directionality. Uh, it has moral force. If you don't believe that's true, just try to jump a cue. <laughs> um, and this, again, is a matter of both arranging our bodies in space, but also seeing 
a line of people as a queue is a cultural practice. And those are two bits of cultural practice that maybe you can start to see are part of a single cultural ecosystem where that cultural ecosystem contains in it patterns that we produce and ways of domesticating our cognitive, proper, our cognitive uh, capabilities like visual attention, memory, the rest of that, ways of organizing those things to coordinate with the structures that we make in our world. Um, so there are lots and lots of those. Um, we could imagine cultural practices of arithmetic or simple mathematics cognition. Um, you know, when kids learn to count, often kids learn to do a couple of things before they can count. Uh, one thing is you might have a child pick up a toy and put it in a container, and another toy and put it in a container, and that basically amounts to moving a partition through a set of objects or moving a set of objects across a partition. And kids can master that. Um, another thing, here's another cultural practice that kids master. Uh, in English, they learn a sequence of number names, one, two, three, and so on. And often, children can recite the number names and can move things into containers before they can coordinate those two things like this, one, two, three. Now that we've done this, we have a cultural practice, and any of you who've taught a kid to count know that you provide lots of organizing structure to help the kid as they move the object, they move to the next name and the number sequence, and so on. And that's a cultural practice. In a way, I call it acting like a cognitive enzyme. It takes two previously existing cognitive capacities and it sticks them together in a coordinated way to make a new thing, to make counting. And being able to enumerate objects is just a stepping stone to a huge number of other cognitive accomplishments. But these are cultural practices. These are not things that are wired into the human brain, even if it's true that our brains over the last 100,000 years have adapted themselves to the presence of language. We are a linguistic species, no doubt. Still, getting this stuff organized this way is a matter of learning cultural practices. And that orchestration of existing bits into new, more complex bits is recursive. So now counting becomes a component piece of something else at a higher level, and those become component pieces of something else as a higher level. And that fact that we build up this higher and higher level processes out of these component pieces, it has implications that many people don't recognize. There are usually many ways to assemble a system that can enact a given high level process. And that means it's not possible to infer low level processes, including innate processes, from the structure of higher level processes, although we often try. Let me give you a slightly more complex problem. This one's from the world of ship navigation. A ship travels 1,500 yards in three minutes. What is the speed of the ship in nautical miles per hour? And I'll give you something you need to know. There are 60 minutes in an hour. Most of you knew that. There's approximately 2,000 yards, almost exactly 2,000 yards in a nautical mile. Okay, go ahead. All right, well, all right. We know that here's where you would start. Um, and part of the problem here, at least the problem for the navigators that I worked with, are 
how do you turn distance equals rate times time into an equation that isolates the rate term? We have to do some algebra. Let's say we could get that right, then we could substitute in the values, and we could then do the arithmetic, and we could get an answer. And that's one way to do it. That's a popular way. Uh, no navigator uh, would do this problem this way, I can tell you that. Um, you could do it with a calculator, and I've seen navigators sometimes try to use calculators when they thought that computation was hard, but the calculator doesn't help you control the ordering of terms in an equation. You still have to get that right. You still have to decide which keys to push when. Uh, this is actually still quite a difficult way to do it. Here's a simpler way. What you're seeing here is what's called a three-scale nomogram. Uh, we have, at that level, we have a... Um, a logarithmic scale that's showing time in minutes. In the middle, there's a logarithmic scale that's showing distance in either yards or miles. So, 2,000 yards is one mile. Um, and at the bottom, uh, what was our problem? Distance. Oh, um, speed. Yes, speed. Uh, so at the bottom, we have the speed in knots. And so this one is actually laid out so that if we went 1,000 yards in three minutes, our speed is 10 knots. Um, no navigator would do this if the problem was stated the way I stated it because there's something called the three-minute rule. If a ship goes 1,500 yards in three minutes, you just throw away the last two figures, and the speed is 15 knots. Now, again, this is just domestication of visual attention, but look at what had to happen. This is embedded in a cognitive ecosystem that includes this bizarre stuff like why are there 60 minutes in an hour that allows three minutes to be 1 20th of an hour, and why are there 2,000 yards in a mile that allows 100 yards to be 1 20th of a nautical mile. Well, those are unit systems that developed for quite different reasons. The miles recent, the 60 minutes in an hour goes to the Babylonians about 4,000 years ago. But there's this serendipitous collision in the present of these elements of cognitive ecologies that move forward that make <coughs> that thing dead trivial to do. So you can guess. What's the favorite interfix interval for a ship? Well, it's three minutes. Um, and it's because this problem becomes absolutely dead simple to do. Um, each of those methods implies a different functional system. And by functional system, I mean a way of orchestrating the coordination among pieces, where the pieces in this case include a pencil, a notation system, a sheet of paper, a set of procedures for operating on those symbols as things in a world where that one includes a calculator, knowledge of uh, algebra. The other one includes the ability to read these scales, to find a straight edge, to interpolate on a scale, to align the straight edge, to read values. And the last one is just a matter of um, domesticating our visual attention. 
And we can ask when we look at that, where is the cognition in any of those? Well, in every one, some of it's in the brain. Because you can't do any of those things without a brain. But it's not all in the brain. In every case, the functional system reaches out into the world. And the cognitive accomplishment, the cultural accomplishment, involves getting that orchestration, that coordination between internal resources and these external resources. And as I now look back at a ship, I see this cognitive ecosystem where there's a chart. There are tools like these, uh, they're called dividers, sometimes called a compass for spanning distances. There's, you can't quite see it from where you're sitting, but that circle circles a little compass rose that puts a 360 degree directional frame onto the chart. Um, by the way, that 360 degree directional frame not only gives us what's called azimuth, the direction on the surface, that also gives us a coordinates for the entire globe. Latitude and longitude are also based on that same 360 degree system. Um, there's a wristwatch that links in our time, and again, we've got 60 minutes and an hour. That stuff. Here's a bearing record log. This, the bearing record log actually has a format of columns and rows. Now, all of us are familiar with tabular layouts where you could have, in this case, each row has a time and each column is a different uh, landmark that's been cited and then the value that goes in each cell is a bearing to that landmark. Did you know that that column and row format that's a way to control or express a relationship between two variables, and it's more than 3,000 years old. So we have deep history. We have a rich social and material and cognitive ecology in which these things, these various skills, strategies, cultural practices are embedded. Uh, I just marked there there's a... Uh, sound-powered phone the guy's talking on and rank insignia on the breast of uh, the quartermaster chief. Um, and there's things you can't see. There's a gyro compass. There's an alidade. These are material things. Uh, there's a fixed cycle, which is an immaterial thing. That's a, just a cultural practice, a procedure for what order to do a set of steps in. There's a division of labor, another thing that's real but can't be seen. And that's, of course, another cultural practice. Um, the three-minute rule from a cognitive science point of view is really wonderful because it substitutes percep sorry, robust perceptual processes for complex conceptual processes. You see the answer by looking at the problem statement in a particular way. It turns out you don't have to know why it works in order to use it. And I never could find a navigator in the Navy who could explain to me why it works. Uh, sorry, and so you don't even have to know why it works in order to discover it. If you lived in a world where we did our fixes on three-minute intervals and every time you went 800 yards it was eight knots and every time you went 1,000 yards it was 10 knots, it wouldn't take very long for you to find that regularity. Um, some very recent work I wanted to bring back to this is a paper, 2010, just came out by Rob Goldstone and colleagues. Uh, where if you look at actually doing algebraic manipulation 
So we want to solve for y, and we have 4 times y plus 8 equals 24. What you really want to do is you could subtract 8 from both sides, and you could divide both sides by 4. But as you get more experience, what you do is you move the 8 across the equal sign, and you change that from a plus to a minus. So you have 24 minus 8, that's 16. And now you move the 4 across, but because it's times, you do division on the other side. So now you're dividing 16 by 4, and y equals 4. We got the right answer. The vertical bars represent a grid that moves. And it turns out that if you move the grid in that direction for a problem that involves moving terms across the equal sign in that direction, it facilitates the solution. And if you move it in the opposite direction, it inhibits the solution. Well, that's an incredible thing because we thought cognition was the internal manipulation of internally represented symbols. But this claims that symbol processing by humans is an interaction with the actual symbols in the world. And you can mess it up by just encouraging motion in one direction or another. And that fits very well with this idea of the cultural practices of we produce high-level cognition by orchestrating the interaction of internal resources and external resources via cultural practices. And, of course, doing algebra is cultural practices. So... Um, I guess I've known this for a very long time, but I'm becoming better at saying it out loud these days, that cultural practices organize these distributed cognition systems. And then you can branch out. You think, when I was thinking this way, I realized that language, human language, is the modern or today's manifestation of an unbroken chain of cultural practice that spans more than 60,000 years, maybe 80,000, maybe 100,000 years. It's an unbroken chain of cultural practice in human language. Take reading. You know, reading and writing were so hard, school had to be invented. That's one story about reading and writing, that it's actually so difficult to get what reading or writing does is coordinate a very complex set of resources, some of them internal, some of them external, a lot that have to do with the domestication of visual attention. But get those things coordinated just right so you can actually produce the phenomenon of reading. Um, that's a really rich cognitive ecosystem. So maybe at this point you can follow me in imagining the roles of culture, context, and history and society on the constitution of cognition. We haven't said very much about the body yet. So let me move to that. I just want to briefly refer to a beautiful study that was done by a student in my laboratory, a student named Amaya Bekvar, and she was studying biochemists. And what you're seeing here in the image on the left is a principal investigator in a biochemistry lab at UCSD, and she studies the structure of hemoglobin and something that's called thrombomodulin, which is a molecule. It's an enzyme that attaches to a hemoglobin uh, molecule, and in the left she has an overhead projector with what's called a ribbon diagram of the molecule on the projector, and she has put her hand onto the depiction of the molecule, so here we have this external representation. She puts her hand on there, and it actually has four loops, and she picks up, which one does she get rid of? She picks up the four loops with her fingers as if by contagion, and then holds her hands up 
and says, this is the active site, and our new theory is that thrombomodulin either does this or does this. Now, what's nice about that is she has turned her hand into the molecule. And instead of having a static diagram, she can now reason about the dynamics of the molecule, which, by the way, seeing dynamics of molecules is really hard. X-ray crystallography is the way we generally see molecules, and it's always static. So she has now animated a static representation by turning her body into it and can now express. And I maintain that that's not just communication, that's reasoning. She is using her body to reason about the behavior of this molecule. Okay, um, let's, let's get aloft here just for briefly for a minute. In addition to working with uh, major airlines around the world for the last 20 years, in the last three or four years I've been working with a local school that trains pilots to fly these are called entry-level biz jets, or sometimes they're called pet jets. Um, so these are little jet airplanes, um, several passenger airplanes. What We're not so much interested in learning to fly that airplane, but what we're interested in is the cognitive nature of the learning and the teaching that happens in that setting. And what we got interested in here was the way that acting might be a form of perceiving and thinking. Uh, there's an author named Alvin Noe uh, who writes a lot about, he's a philosopher, he writes about these issues, and one of Noe's catchphrases is that perception is not something that happens to us, it's something we do. And um, as a pilot myself, I knew that a lot of the perceiving that happens in an airplane of any sort uh, is things that people do with their bodies. So let me show you. Briefly, there's this uh, concept in the world of aviation called situation awareness. Here's a definition of situation awareness. The perception of the elements in the environment within a volume of time and space, the comprehension of their meaning and the projection of their status in the near future. Um, and that's normally conceived of in aviation human factors as an internal mental phenomenon. That refers only to perception, by the way. If you read that definition, you would not suspect that action was part of situation awareness. But what we did is we partnered with that local flight training center. We wanted to look at how pilots and instructors constructed for themselves representations of the spatial relationships between the airplane and its environment uh, in ongoing flight training. Um, we've looked at 11 pilots in the study, I wanted, and they come from various nations, different experience and age levels. Uh, for the paper that uh, we did a little study on, we chose three for sort of maximum variability. You can see we have a K Korean cadet with only 220, 250 total flight hours, a French woman uh, certified flight instructor with about 2,000 hours. We had a recently retired American uh, 737 captain with about 20,000 hours of experience, huge range of experience, different cultural backgrounds. Um, and what we did, inspired by Sadi Lalu and his subcam, I built hat cams. Um, I put a little uh, wide angle camera, video camera, in the bill of a baseball cap and I put it on my instructors, Christina on the left and Noel on the right, and recorded. Uh, and I put lapel mics on the pilots and I recorded audio and video. Uh, while they flew, 
because it's a business jet, there's always a snack tray, which <laughs> makes a good place to put the uh, video recorder and my digital audio recorder. Um, I rode in the back, taking notes and monitoring uh, what was going on. Uh, this is a, a couple of views from the hat cam, uh, and it turns out that we were pretty able to recover uh, gesture and action by uh, both the instructor and the pilot. Uh, we coded um, a bunch of data here. We coded the who made the representation, what it referred to, was it a performance target like an attitude of the airplane or was it a geographic feature like where's the center line of the runway, what resources were used, was speech used, nonverbal body was a display or a chart or some outside object used, and if there was a gesture, was it iconic or indexical? And <clears throat> the thing I want to point to is in the bottom row there, uh, in this corpus, we found 1,153 representations of space in 266 minutes, and that's one about every 14 seconds. So at least in flight training, pilots and instructors invest heavily in creating representations of spatial situation of the airplane. So, and here's where we get, I think, to the punchline. Um, most of the representations of spatial relations are multimodal in the sense that they combine verbal and nonverbal uh, behavior. So over there we have an instructor pointing to an instrument saying, don't rely on just that. And down here, a pilot modeling what he would do if he was asked to go around. He'd say, max power, so he models moving the thrust levers forward. There were some that were verbal only. There were some that were nonverbal only. But the majority are multimodal. The body's certainly involved. Uh, most of the representations were embodied. And by that, I don't mean that the, just that the body was used to make it. Because when Christina tells a pilot who's rolling out on his final approach, this is OK. She's using her body. But that's, that emblem is not representing anything about the situation. But when she tells another pilot, I want you to imagine that runway center line going right through the middle of your chest. That's embodied for her, but she's also giving the pilot an embodied technique for controlling the airplane, to use his body as an instrument in the control of the airplane. And most of the representations, the majority, vast majority, are situated, that means that they in some way rely on, for their meaning, they rely on the local context. And I guess it wouldn't have been a surprise that situation awareness is situated, um, but there it is. And when we compare that to the literature, it's really striking. We see that flight instructors and students make extensive use of their bodies and the relation of their bodies to surrounding space while constructing, remembering, and reasoning about the situation of the airplane. The notion that situation awareness is primarily a mental factor is widespread in the literature, and it's not an empirical finding. It's an artifact of a particular way of looking for situation awareness. And this is why, as I started the talk, I said this is why it's so important that we have our image, the image of whatever is cognition or interaction, that we get those images right. Because if we have the wrong image, we can actually pursue a research strategy that produces results that confirm 
our prejudices but miss key parts of the phenomena. Okay, just to show you that that's not just in flight training. Um, I've been studying, uh, actually since 9-11, I've been unable to get in a cockpit in North America. So I've been driven offshore. Uh, I've been to Brazil uh, and Mexico, and uh, this is actually data from Japan. Uh, this is the layout of charts just after landing in a uh, Japanese 777, and um, the big blue chart on angle in the middle is what's called an en route chart, and the pilot can see where the airplane is and where the airport is more than 100 miles away from the destination, and that's about where the crew needs to get its planning done for how it's going to make its descent and approach uh, to the airport. The chart that's superimposed on the blue one is an approach plate, and that says when you get off of that en route structure and into the vicinity of the airport, here's how you will navigate both laterally and vertically to bring the airplane to the runway. The white chart on the right uh, that's clipped to the yoke and actually has uh, sticky notes on it and lots of annotation. Pilots love to annotate their charts. That's a runway diagram that shows the runway complex at the airport. So I know that if I land on this runway, I should turn right and not left. It's so embarrassing as a commercial airline pilot to land the airplane and get off on the wrong side of the runway <laughs> and have to taxi all the way around the whole airport to get to your gate. So that says, what side am I getting off? And then up here in the upper left is actually the gate diagram because the company will have advised the airplane via actually a little note that prints out on a sheet of paper in the cockpit what gate they're going to. But think about that. This is situation awareness for a commercial airline pilot that allows the pilot to imagine the trajectory of the airplane from more than 100 miles away from the airport down into the area, down onto the runway, off the runway, and to the gate, all right here. Now, certainly... Some of that situation awareness is in the pilot's brain. But it doesn't all have to be there. In fact, it's not that it's remembered or stored, it's reconstructed. And this layout of charts allows pilots to reconstruct what they need when they need it. The, you can think, well, that okay, that's great. It actually has really important practical consequences because one of the big efforts in modern aviation is to produce what's called the paperless cockpit. And we'll do that by putting in computer screens. And unfortunately, the current technology only allows us to display one chart at a time. And we've been trying to argue. I'm being supported by Boeing, so I've been trying to argue to Boeing engineers to look at this picture and understand what pilots are doing. If you give them a single display, and in fact, this is even worse than that, two pilots in the flight deck the one who sits on the left will have his or her display here, and the one who sits on the right will have his or her display there, and that completely destroys their ability to reason with each other by pointing to a shared chart to say, here, we're going we're gonna to go like this, and then we'll get off, and so on. So anyway, um, lots of interesting stuff there. Getting close. I've got a few more ideas to throw at you. Um, so I would now like us to imagine cognitive ecosystems in which cultural practices orchestrate the coordination of resources, 
including the body and social and material patterns, in ways that produce these cognitive accomplishments. This was the big puzzle for me as an anthropologist. I was always interested in, well, how do we humans get done all this cool stuff that we can do, this incredible stuff that we can do? And it turns out that knowing everything there is to know about the human brain does not explain how humans accomplish what we accomplish. We've got to have the cultural world in there. We've got to have the cultural practices in there. Okay. Um, so what? Um, the cognitive capabilities of these systems are determined, I think, by the patterns of information flow. What information goes where, when, and in what form. And generally, that flow is orchestrated by cultural practices. Now, that's actually orchestrated even inside your brain by cultural practices. Those of you who are accomplished musicians have brains that are now wired differently than those of us who are not accomplished musicians. That's just the way it works. Uh, and embodiment, the idea of taking the body seriously brings our attention to all kinds of new pathways that were sort of um, overlooked before, even within the body. We are multimodal creatures. Our experience is multi-sensory. That is, you are at this moment having a visual and auditory and somatosensory and maybe olfactory, unfortunately, experience. All of that stuff is integrated together for you. And we now know that multimodality is important. For example, we do form internal representations, but multimodal representations tend to be more stable. If the modalities are coordinated, multimodal representations are more stable than representations that happen in a single modality. Learning. It turns out the vision and audition are really good because there are correlations between the kinds of events that produce visual stimulus in the world and the kinds of events that produce auditory stimulus. Even further than that, the way the brain gets organized, if you said, I'm going to study vision and Sandra's going to study audition and I'll try to figure out how a visual system got organized without reference to audition and she'll figure out how the auditory system gets organized without ref reference to vision, we both have really hard problems. But if either of us would just lighten up and say, oh, you know what? Part of learning about vision is capitalizing on additional structure that's provided by the auditory system. So what looks like a more complex system is actually easier to explain than the divide and conquer view where we took all the pieces apart. Um, I've got a paper now on AHA Insight where I believe a major creative discovery for a navigator happened as a consequence of the opportunistic superimposition of representations in two different modalities. So again, connections that, new pathways that we might not have thought of before. The specific cross-modal mappings that are made available in our world and that are required of human participants are not determined just by our genes or our brains. They're determined by our cultural practices. Go back to uh, playing a musical instrument. That's always gonna be a multi-sensory experience and it's a cultural practice. Okay. Um, I think that some things that once seemed obvious can now be seen as obviously wrong. 
Um, because all high-level cognitive performances are mediated by cultural practices, it's not possible to infer individual cognitive capacities directly from societal level of technological advancement. I know I don't have to flog this dead horse, but there are people who believe that the individuals who live in technologically advanced societies have different minds than people who live in technologically simple societies. And having spent a couple of years in the Trobriand Islands in a technologically simple society, that worried me a little bit. And that's a conclusion that you're driven to if you think that all the cognitive action is inside. If it's got to all be inside the heads, and clearly the world we're living in right now is the consequence, the output of cognitive activity, then the only place we could look for an explanation would be inside people's heads. So we're driven to conclude that low technology maybe goes with primitive technology, primitive mind. But of course, if we realize that what's really happening is there are ways to organize cognition in a social group, there are ways to organize cognition and interactions with uh, sorry, cultural history of material artifacts, we suddenly have different places to look for the sources of complexity besides inside uh, people's heads. Uh, if we look at everyday activity, uh, and I, people are happy to tell me that I can't infer anything about individual cognitive capacities from looking at everyday activity, and I acknowledge that it's really it's really tough because of the depth of that structure of mediation. But it even now makes me wonder about a lot of our experiments. When we do an experiment, are we seeing the psychologists love underlying cognitive processes? Are we seeing the underlying processes at work? Or are we seeing the properties of a complex distributed system that's located in a rich cognitive ecosystem? That makes me wonder, under what conditions should we expect to observe the effects of innate skills or capacities or representational formats? I think there are some conditions where we can probably come close, but I'm guessing that those conditions are a lot more restricted than we have often assumed. Um, if it's really the case that we're in these cognitive ecosystems and the ecosystem is inhabited by lots and lots of cultural practices, some of which have synergistic relationships to each other. Wouldn't it be great if we could find a way to measure the differences in the cognitively effective cultural practices across populations of people? Maybe we could build like some kind of test such that, such that we would expect people to do well on the test items that match the cultural practices of their everyday cognitive ecosystem and expect them to do poorly on the items that did not match their familiar practices. You know, if you had such a thing, you could even track over time changes in the cultural practices in an ecosystem. This graph is from... James Flynn's book, What is Intelligence, 2008. Uh, Flynn is sometimes known for what's called the Flynn effect. These are graphs of performance on IQ tests over the last 60 years. And up there in the top, the Raven progressive matrices, that's uh, really a test that uh, matches, that uh, examines spatial reasoning and uh, 
reasoning about sequences in, uh, uh, of transformation in space. Uh, the almost flat one at the bottom is information, arithmetic, and vocabulary. And f- this is a puzzle. If you just look at that, you think that kids today are a lot smarter than kids were 60 years ago. And being over 60, I'm less happy about conceding that than, than those of you who are, are younger. Um, but there are a lot of reasons why this might be, but one of Flynn's ideas... So this here's the test. I think here's the thing we're looking for, a way to measure cultural practices that shape cognition. One of Flynn's explanations for the so-called Flynn effect is that the everyday practices of the Western societies that this test reflects have come, the everyday practices come closer to approximating the skills that are actually sampled by an IQ test. So I have no doubt that an IQ test measures something about cognitive abilities, but it's also measuring something about the fit between the cultural practices in a population and the terms of the test. And I don't know of any way at the present to separate those things out. I do believe that aggregated data from IQ tests are as much a measure of the difference between the cultural practices tapped by the examination and the cultural practices of the community from which the subjects were recruited as they are measures of cognitive capabilities of the subjects. So all of that is sort of about this. Traditionally in cognitive science, we, we thought about cognition over there in the lower right-hand corner. Um, but my argument is that if we really take a look at cognition in these other settings, use modern data collection technology to measure behavior, understanding that action is a form of thinking, and we look in these real-world settings, we're looking in a different place, we're using different instrumentation, and we expect to see something different. What we expect to see is the coordination among resources of complex cognitive ecosystems as orchestrated by cultural practices. And I thank you. Now, Ed uh, has agreed to take some questions, so uh, over to you. Thank you. Um, you. You made the very telling point that uh, some things that once seemed obvious now seem obviously wrong. And I'm wondering whether the converse is also true, that... Uh, some things which once seemed obviously wrong now seem obvious. And I was very struck in that context uh, as you were talking, thinking about the work of the late J.J. Gibson, the ecological psychologist. Uh, for, for many years, Gibson was excoriated by the uh, psychological community as a whole who accused him of all sorts of things, including mysticism, despite the fact that he was a great experimenter. Uh, it, it seems to me that, that much of what you've been saying can be um, <clears throat> encapsulated 
excuse me, in uh, Gibson's notion of uh, affordance. And I just wonder whether you would comment on possible connections between his work and what you've been saying. Yes, as a matter of fact, I, um, in that uh, the description of uh, pilots using their bodies to construct the representations, uh, I was actually drawing on some of Gibson's work. And a few years ago, I reread the ecological approach to visual perception. And, and again, I was taken by, I think that's where Noe learned most of what he learned about perception is something that, not something that happens to us, it's something we do. I will say this about Gibson, though. I don't think Gibson understood culture. I do think that he understood the psychology of perception much better than a whole generation of psychologists did. And I agree that things that for a long time seemed wrong in Gibson's work were are now actually uh, being rehabilitated by authors like Noe and Susan Hurley and, and others. Um, but I'm still, uh, <clears throat> I uh, grind my teeth a little bit, though, when I read Gibson because he, he's, he's actually an example of a wider set of phenomena. And maybe this goes, here's the, it's the future of your, uh, your point about the things that have seemed wrong could actually be right. Uh, I still think that as professionals, cognitive science, scientists routinely engage in a set of discursive practices, a form of cultural practice. We engage in discursive practices that systematically render the role of culture invisible. And we do a lot, both theoretically and methodologically, to hold it at arm's length. Well, my colleagues do. I'm, I'm embracing it. So I w I'm, in my optimistic moments, uh, that still seems wrong to most cognitive scientists, that culture could have the kind of role or that it would be as pervasive as I'm claiming or that it would affect. We don't throw away our experimental results. I'm just cautioning that the way we interpret them might have to be shifted. And I'd like to think that there are still things in the future that seem wrong today that will be seen as right, seen as correct in the future. Thanks. Hi there. Um, I've just got a question, uh, I guess, on a more basic level. But um, in everything that you're talking about, the connection with culture and cognition, how do you see embodied con cognition to play a part in it? Yeah, I think it, I've spent about the last six or eight years exploring the consequences of taking embodiment seriously. And I consider my own work, if, if you read Cognition in the Wild, uh, I think it was quite disembodied. And so that my recent papers, all of my recent papers, are uh, focused on what there is in addition to learn now from looking at the body. Uh, the other thing, you know, what, here's another piece of the importance of embodiment. One piece is this notion that when we're acting, that could actually be a form of thinking. I think that's a key insight from embodiment. But there's another one, and it has to do with the brain. Uh, and I didn't say much about this in my lecture, but when you take the body seriously, you have to take the brain seriously as a physiological organ. And now when you look at all this, the last two decades have seen enormous pro progress in brain science, but it turns out 
that what we know about cognition in a brain is due to the fact that it's a bodily organ because all we can measure is physiology. We never measure cognition. We do electrophysiology by measuring electrical potentials. We do magnetic resonance imagery by measuring the side effects of the uptake of oxygen in the brain because it's an organ. So the, the, the rise of the brain could have been seen as um, a, a reductionist retreat, but I think for smart brain scientists, it's actually a move forward because you can't do the brain without the body, and as soon as you do the body, you have to situate it in the world. And so I think that for me, embodiment and at least the, the smart money in cognitive neuroscience is on that connection. And I, I think the whole field is getting richer uh, because of that. At the beginning, you, you said that time was the third dimension you were interested in. And um, what you showed us about uh, situation awareness of these pilots who are looking forward with their maps and what we see when we observe people, like, for example, when they come home with a subcam and we see they're always preparing the next step, like taking their keys outside of their pocket while they're in the lift. Like, can you build on, on, on that idea of distribution over time and where are the people, where is the subject yeah. in terms of cognition? Yeah, I, I actually think my... My current working definition of intersubjectivity is the continuous consummation of expectation. Because I think we are always, each of us, in every moment, simultaneously in the present. We're in the past. We know uh, we're, our, our brains are representing the past at different time scales from millisecond level and like our auditory and visual short-term stores to longer thanks to to decades and maybe a whole life history, but we're simultaneously in the future on those various timescales of that just my motor activity, I know that there's pre-activation for the next move. It goes from millisecond level out to, I'm expecting dinner later, study, to you know, ash cloud willing, I'm going to go back to the States next week. So, um, so at each moment, I think we're in the present, the past, and the future on multiple timescales, but in my work I've become much more interested in and aware of anticipation or expectation as a piece of this, and, and embodied. It's, this is not that there's a conscious representation of the expectation, but just the way our motor processes work uh, is already built in uh, expectation and anticipation. <coughs> There's a question there at the back, and then So, good evening. Uh, just a quick question about, uh, further to the question about J.J. Gibson and uh, reference cultural, pra cultural practices, organized cognitive systems. How do you mitigate in uh, the experimental methodology learning and reinforcement of cultural practices when you look at... Um, the cognitive systems, and I'm, I'm really sort of thinking of navigation, exocentric versus endocentric uh, navigation. The question to me is how to investigate this experimentally. Sorry, no. How do you how do you mitigate uh, the problems when you when a in navigation when someone's used to uh, 2D 
navigation on a flat map, and then you want to experiment versus the uh, efficacy versus, say, 3D navigation, how do you mitigate the fact that he spent the last 20 years learning and practicing using the 2D practices? So this is about the cultural systems mitigating the cognitive system. Yeah, that's... Um, <clears throat> well, again, if, if the question is how do I, how would I organize an experimental investigation? Of yeah, that? that's not my forte. I'm, uh, no, I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I trust that if there's an issue there that can be clearly stated, we could design an experimental investigation. So if I understand it, please accept my apology. I do have a bit of a hearing deficit, and I'm having a little bit of trouble. I've missed a couple words. But if it's a navigator who spent 20 years navigating in a 2D on charts, and now you're going to navigation in a 3D world, is this a virtual reality world? Exactly. There's an experiment conducted by RAND about five years ago where they – they try to look at the way that people were uh, navigating and the cognitive system, cognitive processes for navigation. Mm-hmm. And they, they felt that a 3D representation closer replicates our day-to-day activities mm-hmm. of our, the way that we navigate in the world. So what they did is they designed an experiment using virtual reality to see if there was any efficacy gained by teaching people or planning the navigational route three-dimensionally versus uh, mm-hmm. more traditional two-dimensional models. And the, the results they got uh, went against uh, the, what they were feared, the hypoth- hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the arguments against their experiment was, experiment was that they were using people that had spent 20 years practicing in a two-dimensional mm-hmm. s- practices yeah. So, the, when they when they went into the three D world, they just it was novel. Yeah, I, I think you also have to keep in mind that every representational format will support or facilitate certain kinds of inferences and make other ones difficult. I, I mean, if you think about Micronesian navigation, there are some people who thought crazily that when Micronesians walk across the island and the palm tree goes by on the right, but they actually imagine themselves stationary and the palm trees are moving. Right? Because when they're out at sea, they imagine the canoe is stationary with the islands moving, but the cultural practice, the strategy of imagining the canoe is stationary while the islands move at sea is a way to produce a representational format in which the key inferences are simpler to make. It's a matter of frames of reference. You only have to update one frame of reference if you make the canoe stationary. But the idea that that practice would then go over to a different activity which involves moving through 3D space, including ducking to go through a door. Well, it's a, I, I guess one thing that's a, that might even been part of the RAND experiment problem is to assume a kind of uniformity across contexts for cognitive strategies. And one of the things I'm real interested in, I'm a strong believer in cultural differences, but I don't like the ideas of reducing culture to an independent variable. Because when you do that, 
you wipe away intracultural variability and you especially wipe away situational variability. And I think we are masters of changing cognitive strategy as a function of the situation we find ourselves in. So that could be part of the problem. The, the other thing that came to mind when you talked about that is autobiographically, my own history was 20 years spent as a navigator of surface craft on the ocean. Almost all two-dimensional. We just assume the ocean's a two-dimensional space. And then I learned to fly airplanes. And it turns out that a lot of what you know about navigating on the surface of the ocean transfers into the horizontal component of flying an airplane. But you have a third dimension. And you, you really have to think about it. And, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember being so embarrassed in one of my early flights. I flew perfect lateral path to the airport I was getting to, and I arrived like one mile away at 3,000 feet, and my instructor said, well, how do you think you're going to get to the runway? <laughs> we couldn't get down if they shot us down. So, yeah, so, um, right, maybe if they'd used pilots... <laughs> Because as a pilot, you have to learn the skills of reasoning about navigation in actually four-dimensional space if you're flying a big airplane, because then you have speed to worry about, too. So, yeah, interesting question. Uh, well, thank you for a very, very enjoyable talk. Um, as a researcher, I try and use um, these ideas, your ideas, in organizational and institutional contexts. And in those contexts, I often come back to questions of power and politics. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if, in your work, in, what things you've observed, the way you describe um, cognitive ecosystems, um, if you had to, where would you um, describe the point of intersect between cognitive ecosystems and questions of power and politics, where would you identify them as lying? Yeah, um, the, the cheap answer is to say I'd put it right in there with affect, uh, which is also something I said nothing about. Um, <clears throat> but no one called me on that yet. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think that's important, and, and one of my favorite um, papers for understanding power from this point of view is Charles Goodwin's classic paper, Professional Vision, uh, from 95. And in that paper, uh, Goodwin looks at the uh, first trial of the police officers who were accused of violating Mr. Rodney King's rights when they uh, administered a savage beating to a motorist in southeast L.A. And the uh, police officers were acquitted. Uh, in a criminal trial. Um, and what Goodwin argues, if you, if you look at that case, if, you show, if I showed you the videotape of the police beating Rodney King, I think everyone in this room would agree that the police were just knocking the crap out of this guy. And he was laying there taking it. Um, but, and so it was an amazing thing that the jury acquitted these police officers, and it was so amazing to the citizens of Los Angeles that it was followed by riots when the decision was announced. What Chuck Goodwin shows, and this is the matter of power, Chuck Goodwin shows that the way the defense succeeded was being smarter than the prosecution. The prosecution thought that the videotape spoke for itself. Anyone will look at that 
and the tape speaks for itself. But we all know that nothing speaks for itself. It speaks because you engage in a set of cultural practices for interpreting it. And what the defense did was they called expert witnesses who came in from the police training academy and said, what you're seeing here is a piece of careful police craft work. <laughs> really? And that there's a cycle. If the, um, if the suspect escalates violence, you meet that with counterviolence until there's a de-escalation and then you reevaluate. And then if the, <laughs> and if the suspect escalates again, you meet that with counterviolence until there's a de-escalation and then you evaluate. And it showed that tools that the police officer had included not only the baton but the kick. And these so it was control of the category system and control of the coding system that established the power relations. And the other thing that has to do with institutions is the police can call an expert witness, someone who trains policemen. Who is the expert witness to represent the victim of a police beating? Well, in the first trial, there was none. In the second trial, where two of the officers were actually convicted in a civil trial, the prosecution in that case did call on physiologists who said that this movement by Mr. King's leg, which the defense says was him trying to get up, is the kind of movement that you will get if you hit a large muscle with a baton. So it gave the jury in that trial a way to interpret what they saw so that it... But who controls the category system? That's where the power is. And it's those, the cultural practices are to employ the category system, but once you control the category system, then you can control the outcome. And that's power. Right. Okay, I'm going to use my prerogative as chair to, to call you on the problem of affect in that. <laughs> uh, I think also for, there are many of our students here, and I'm sure they would like to hear you speaking on how the problem of cognition intersects with emotional life and with affection. Uh, I think many of my colleagues uh, here at LSE have been very emphatic in proposing the idea that cognition is not cold, that cognition is actually hot from the start. It's, we don't know the world just mm -hmm. rationally in a sense of the touched cognition, but we know it with emotional uh, mm -hmm impetus and with effect. What do you have to say about that? All I can say is there's a lot of work that remains to be done, but I think this is another contribution of the new emphasis on the body. Because as soon as we see the role of the body in cognition, then we can't hold affect aside. So affect is part of cognition, or cognition is affect as well. But I'm... Uh, I confess that in my own work, uh, I have not yet managed to address affect or emotion in a way that satisfies me. So I'm sure it wouldn't satisfy you. So something to carry on researching. Well, it's 8 o'clock, so we're going to stop here. Thank you very much for coming, and thank you, Ed Hutchins, for a wonderful lecture. Thank you.